Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we conclude our sermon series entitled, Christianity's Family Tree. In this series, we're exploring the different branches and denominations of the Christian church. Join us now for the message, Methodism, Hearts on Fire. Good morning and welcome here to worship at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. I'm Jane Grainer and I'm the senior pastor. And I'm Wesley McCall and I'm the music director. And we are so glad you've joined us this morning, particularly if this is your first time to tune into our worship service. Now later on, we're gonna hear about a house that burns down in rural England and ends up setting all of Britain ablaze. So stay tuned for that. I would like to invite you to make an offering to the ministry of this church so we can keep these live casts going. You can do that by logging on to our website, tumcd.org. You can do that through our church center app, or you can do it the old fashioned way and just mail a check to the church office. And now let us enter into a spirit of worship and prayer with this centering Psalm. From Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him for as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hands on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord protects the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Praise the Lord. And now for our opening prayer. Almighty God, in a time of great need, you raised up your servants, John and Charles Wesley, and by your spirit inspired them to kindle a flame of sacred love which leaped and ran an inextinguishable blaze. Grant that all those whose hearts have been warmed at these altar fires, being continually refreshed by your grace, may be so devoted to the increase of scriptural holiness throughout the land that in this of our time of great need, your will may be fully and effectively done on earth as it is in heaven. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And though we cannot be together in the same space, we are together in the same time. So my prayer for you is peace be with you. Now for our prayer for illumination. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditation of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. We have one scripture reading this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called on you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as Father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, 
Live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so that you have genuine, mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed, through the living and enduring word of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. It was very, very late on a Wednesday evening, February 9th, 1709 to be exact, when the house of Samuel and Susanna Wesley burned to the ground. One of the children woke up in the middle of the, light, of the night as embers were falling from the ceiling at the foot of her bed. And so she sprang from her bed and ran to her parents' bedroom. And there her father Samuel awoke with a start when he heard someone in the street below yell, fire, fire. And then he realized it was his house that was on fire. Well, he sprang out of bed. He went to all the bedrooms. He collected all of his children and he led his children and his wife and the household servants down the staircase to escape. Right after they passed on the staircase, that same staircase burst into flame. When they reached the lower story, they opened the front door, but the draft caused a wall of fire to appear there where the front door was, making it impassable. They went into the living area, found a window, an upper window, that they could just reach uh, through stacking some furniture. And so Samuel and the children were able to escape through that window. But Susanna had been very sick all that day and just was unable to climb up to that window. The only way out for her was through that front door. So three times she moved toward the front door and three times the flames held her back. And finally she prayed a desperate prayer, flung herself through the wall of flame and very miraculously only suffered minor burns. But that was not the only miracle that night. Once they were all out safely from the house, they made the horrifying discovery that their five-year-old son, little Jackie, was not among them. And right when they made that discovery, they could hear little Jackie's voice from a window in the upper story. Samuel tried to run back in the house to save his son, but by that time the staircase had completely burned away. So in despair, he dropped to his knees and he commended his soul to the Lord, the soul of his son to the Lord. Another man, a big bear of a man said, someone get a ladder. And the, and the, and the, excuse me, one of the men said, go get a ladder. And that big bear of a man then said, we don't have time for a ladder. Just climb on me. In the meantime, Jackie had woken up and he had drug a trunk over to the window. And so he was just able to peep right over the windowsill. And so a smaller man then climbed on top of the larger man who was being held in place by some of his buddies. And the smaller man was just able to reach his arm into the window and scoop up little Jackie. And just as he had pulled the child from the window, the ceiling of that bedroom collapsed. And as the smaller man then climbed down with the child in his arms, the entire roof of the house caved in, as well as the wall that they were leaning against, and it collapsed inward. If it had collapsed outward, it would have crushed both the men and little Jackie as well. Now, by this time, the rest of the family had gathered in the house of a neighbor, 
And these two rescuers came in the door with little Jackie with them. And at that point, his father Samuel scooped him up and embraced his son. And he said, come neighbors, let us kneel down. Let us give thanks to God. He has given me all eight children. Let the house go. I am rich enough. Well, little Jackie grew up to be John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. And though he was only five years old at the time, he would later write that he could still remember every minute of that night in vivid detail. And he would frequently refer to himself uh, with a phrase that he found from the Old Testament prophets. He would allude to himself as a brand plucked from a fire. Well, at times, Wesley would look back on that night and just feel as if he'd been spared for some larger purpose. And a few years after the fire, his mother, Susanna, wrote in her journal, I do intend to be more particularly careful of the soul of this child that thou hast so mercifully provided for than ever I have been. Well, if John Wesley had been set aside by the Lord for some great purpose, there was no evidence of that whatsoever as he later served as a parish priest in Savannah, Georgia. Two years after his arrival in America, by this time having suffered a severely broken heart and a disastrous pastorate, Wesley and his brother Charles went onto a ship and sailed back to England in despair. While they were at sea in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was hit uh, the ship was hit by a violent storm. Everyone on board was in danger and fear gripped every single person. Everyone except for a group of Moravians who were on board. Now the Moravians were a group of Czech Protestants who had broken away from the Lutheran church. But instead of shaking in fear, the Moravians were all calm, even the children. Instead of panicking, they just quietly sat and prayed and and sang hymns until the storm was over. And John Wesley looked on in envy. He was so envious that he wished he could have that same kind of assurance that seemed to be coming so easily to even the Moravian children. Well, a few months passed, and one evening back in London, Wesley was invited to a meeting on Aldersgate Street. He didn't want to go, but he went anyway. And there he listened as someone read from the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And Wesley, who felt that he had sinned and failed enough in the last two years to last a lifetime, he hung on these words and later wrote this most famous passage from his own journals. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That date was May 24th, 1738. And nothing in John Wesley's life was ever the same after that. And both in England and in its American colonies, both were irrevocably changed from that date. The Methodist movement had began. And the fire that had so strangely warmed Wesley's heart 
Mao was going to spread throughout Britain and America. The very next year, his friend George Whitfield invited Wesley to come to the port city of Bristol, England, there to preach to the miners and sailors who lived there. But Whitfield invited Wesley not to preach in a proper church, but instead to preach out in the fields, out in the open. And Wesley was aghast and a little scandalized that even Whitfield was doing this, much less that he would do this himself. But once he saw the effect that Whitfield's preaching had on these same miners and sailors, Wesley himself then then made the decision that he too would now preach from the fields. While Whitfield's preaching was very animated and emotional and kind of over the top, Wesley got up to preach. He, he would simply and quietly explain the truth of God's mercy and God's forgiveness and salvation to those who are present. It was reported that as Wesley preached, you could see the tracks of tears forming on the coal blackened face of the miners as they heard many of them for the first time about just how beloved they were by God. Those who watched Wesley preach would later report that even if Wesley was preaching to thousands, each person felt like as if he was looking directly into their eyes and by extension directly into their hearts. Wesley never intended to begin a new denomination. He remained a priest in good standing in the Church of England for the rest of his life, but he came just at a time when many in Britain and in America were not finding the spiritual fulfillment that they so desperately needed from their local parish church. You see, a lot in history had just taken place. Europe was emerging from two centuries of war and violence that was unleashed by the Protestant Reformation and by the Catholic Counter-Reformation. And this fragile peace was being held together by people who just out of desperation decided that perhaps religious tolerance was the lesser of two evils when compared to ongoing and never-ending violent conflict. At the same time, Europe was entering into the Age of Enlightenment. Across the continent, there was a new emphasis on knowledge and, and the use of reason, and the beginnings of modern science began to emerge. By this time, Protestant theology had begun to be organized into intellectually consistent systems of thought, and specifically Protestant formulations of doctrine had began to take shape. But in Protestants' eagerness to separate from Roman Catholic theology and doctrine, one thing that got left behind was the rich tradition of Catholic spiritual formation. The Protestants offered what, in many eyes, was a better and more reasonable theology that appealed to the mind of reason, yet many did not feel that it spoke to the mysteries of the human heart. So one reason that the Methodist movement became so popular is that it offered a Protestant version of spiritual formation, which through which individual Christians could be offered a pathway of discipleship and a pathway toward a deeper, richer, more fulfilling relationship with God. In multiple sermons, I have often presented what, what, uh, what, excuse me, what Methodists call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. 
This refers to the four factors recognized by Wesley as sources and norms for theology. They consist of scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And we also discovered when we talked about Anglicanism that Wesley had inherited three of these, scripture, tradition, and reason from his Anglican heritage. But to these, he added human experience, specifically human spiritual and religious experience. And so together, these forms formed a a comprehensive method for doing theological reflection. In fact, non-Methodist theologians have often said that the Wesleyan quadrilateral was the greatest um, the greatest gift and the most important contribution that Methodism has made to the larger field of Christian theology in general. But J- John Wesley also systemized the movements of grace in the Christian life. Now, all Christians, from whatever branch or denomination they come from, all Christians affirm the grace of God. But in Methodist theology, it has taken a special place of emphasis that is not usually found in other churches. Wesley described the way of salvation as a journey or a movement from grace to grace. And he explained this journey in this way. First, from the moment we are conceived, we are surrounded by what Wesley called prevenient grace. This is the grace that comes before faith in Christ, the grace that allows us to maybe do the right thing even before we know God or even know of the presence of God. This prevenient grace then gives us the ability to be able to hear God's call out to this to us and to be able to respond to that call, to be able to, to reach a conviction of our own sin. And whether this realization comes all at once or slowly and gradually, this, this realization is witnessed also then by our realization of our need for God. Provenient grace then leads us to repentance, a turning away from our sin, and then to a heartfelt faith and trust in Christ. We then experience what is called justifying faith, faith as through our forgiveness of sins, then we are put into right relationship with God. We are born from above, we are regenerated, we are transformed leading to a new life in Christ. Well, this new birth then begins a life of growth in holiness. There we experience then sanctifying grace. God begins to transform our wills and our affections so that we want the things of God. We begin to experience increasing levels of love and joy while we find that the grip that sin and evil have over our lives is slowly released. We're led to periodically rededicate our lives to Christ, and we regularly partake in the means of grace. And as we grow in grace, we seek to share the love of the love of God with all those for the witness of our own lives. And we not only seek personal sanctification, we seek social sanctification, so that through us, God's dream of peace and justice can be realized through us. The goal of sanctification is entire sanctification, or what Wesley called Christian perfection. And this is not where we somehow become perfect and never make mistakes. That's not what Wesley meant by Christian perfection. But only that we can, at times, reach a place spiritually where we are motivated by nothing 
but our love of God and neighbor. And the more we grow in sanctification, the more time we spend in a state of Christian perfection where we are motivated by nothing save for the love of God and neighbor. John Wesley placed a great deal of emphasis on sanctification, much more so than other churches did at the time. And it was aiding Christians in this process of sanctification, in this process of increasing holiness. This is what led to Methodism becoming so popular. Participation in the Methodist movement led to the the lives of individuals being transformed. Wesley encouraged Methodists to attend the local Anglican church on Sundays and there receive the sacrament. But during the week, Methodists got in the habit of meeting in of meeting together in various groups, in larger societies, in smaller classes, and even in very small bands of like individuals where people supported and prayed for one another. This was the beginning of what we now recognize as small group ministry, which you can, you can find throughout the church and in all denominations. So these associations through these societies and classes and bands, they work together with a combination of loving support and gracious accountability. And this led to not only the people's lives being changed, not just changed, but people were transformed from the root of their soul. They were transformed as they experienced sanctification and eventually then even times of Christian perfection. And because so many people were following now the Methodist way, it was having an impact on both British and American society. You know, in many ways, this is, this is the last sermon of this sermon series we're doing on Christianity's family tree. And I say Methodism for last since, you know, we are a Methodist church. But in many ways, I have found this sermon the most difficult to actually assemble, to put together, because after a lifetime in Methodism, uh, years spent in seminary studying Methodism, and over eight years now being a Methodist pastor, there is so much more than I can put into one sermon, and there is so much that I have left out. And it becomes really hard to distill the essence of a single tradition that you know so well into one sermon. But nonetheless, uh, there is so much more than I've had time to get to. But with Methodism, though, we do come full circle in our journey through Christianity's family tree. In our very first Sunday, we looked at the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, the name of that sermon was, Cre was excuse me, Christ Through Eastern Eyes. And you may be surprised that Methodism shares some roots with Eastern Orthodoxy, that Eastern Orthodoxy does not share with either Catholicism or with any of the other Protestant churches. You see, when John Wesley was a student at Oxford University, he studied the classics of Greek and Latin literature. And he also extensively studied the writings of the patristic theologians. That is, he deeply studied the writings of the Christian theologians of the first 400 years in the history of the church. Now, up until the time of Wesley... Most Western Christians were more influenced by the early theologians who had written in Latin, while most Eastern Christians leaned toward the patristic writings that were written in Greek. And that's one reason why the theologies of the Western Church, of Catholicism and Protestantism, could sometimes differ so much from the theology of the Eastern Orthodox churches. 
Wesley, however, took a special interest in those Greek fathers, those Greek writers that were favored by the Eastern Orthodox. And as a result, elements of Eastern Orthodox theology made it into Wesley's theology. In fact, the, the impact of those early Greek theologians upon Wesley, it's become a hot topic in Wesleyan studies. The area in which this is most apparent is in the similarities between Wesley's concept of Christian perfection and the Eastern idea of what was called deification. Now, while sanctification was an idea that was already present in the church, Wesley's thoughts on Christian perfection were unique to him, and many think that he borrowed this idea from Eastern Orthodox theology. See, there's a concept in Eastern Orthodox theology called deification. The idea is that now that Christ has freed us from the ultimate power of evil, then we are now invited to participate in the life of the divine as we become a new creation, as we become more Christ-like, and as the image of God is fully restored within us. Or as one famous line goes in Eastern Orthodox theology, God became what we are so that we may become what God is. There's also a story of Wesley's encounter with a Greek Orthodox bishop that was living in London at the same time Wesley was. And we do know that Wesley and this Greek bishop met several times to discuss theology. Now, there's another story that some believe that this Greek bishop privately consecrated Wesley as a bishop of the church, therefore giving him the authority to ordain clergy for the Methodist church. Now, there's really no way to know if this story is true or not, because it was done in private, and the two witnesses have long since uh, passed away. But I do think the story underscores the idea that Wesley did borrow perhaps quite a bit from our Eastern brothers and sisters. So we've come to the end. So what can we discern now from exploring Christianity's family tree? Well, perhaps we can appreciate that there is something to learn from all the branches and from all of our siblings in Christ, and that the tree, the Christianity's family tree, is not complete without all of its branches. Think about this. Have you ever seen trees that have been trimmed by utility companies in order so the trees won't mess with the, with the power, uh, power lines? These trees often look very weird, very off-balance, uh, the trees are trimmed back sometimes so severely that the tree's health is in danger, and sometimes even to the point that the tree is not able to survive. And I think so it is with the Church of Jesus Christ. Each expression of the Christian faith is a vital branch that enlightens and balances all the other branches. You know, cut off one branch and the balance is disturbed. Begin to think that your branch is the only true branch, and you then put the tr health of the entire tree in jeopardy. So in Christianity's family tree, we can think of, think of it this way. Think of the Jewish faith as the roots that bore the Christian faith and that still sustain us. Christ is the trunk of the tree in which we are all linked. The sap running through our veins and through each branch is the sap of the Holy Spirit, growing each branch then upward into the light 
of its creator. I'm going to leave you with this quote from John Wesley. In using all means of grace, seek God alone. In and through every outward thing, look only to the power of his spirit and the merits of his son. Beware you do not get stuck in the work itself. If you do, it is all lost labor. Nothing short of God can satisfy your soul. Therefore, fix on God in all, through all, and above all. Well said, John. Amen. And now with the confidence of the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For that is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We will be back into our sanctuary for permanent in-person worship on December 5th. That's the first Sunday in December. And by the way, then also a communion Sunday. We had a meeting with the contractors this last Tuesday, and uh, we all agreed to a deadline of December 5th. And so come hell or high water, come whatever the wiles of Satan may do, we are going to be back in our sanctuary worshiping December 5th, first Sunday in December, whether the sanctuary is finished or not. If it's not quite finished, we'll just make do. But we are going to start worshiping again as a congregation, and we are going to be worshiping in the season of Advent and Christmas and beyond together and in person. Thanks be to God. But I also want to assure you that we are going to continue to be live casting our service each and every Sunday on Facebook Live because we want to continue reaching out to all of those that we have been now reaching through the ministry of these live casts and the recordings of them. And recall that you can always find a recording of our service on our Facebook page, on our website, tumcd.org, or on our church podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And here's your action item for this week. Meditate this week and pray about what may be holding you back from spending more time in a state of Christian perfection, of love for God and neighbor. And also, as I've asked you the last several weeks, keep Trinity in your prayers. I'm asking that you pray for Trinity and for not only this church, but for the contractor and all the workers who are going to be working so hard in the next few weeks to get our sanctuary finished for December 5th. Be praying every day for this church, I ask you. And so now, just receive this benediction. Go forth this week knowing that you are bathed in grace and then become a conduit of that grace for others. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now love your neighbor and go in peace. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us next Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we'll begin a new sermon series. What is one thing a church and a hospital have in common? Both are in the business of wound management. Join us for the message, The Wound of Grief. 
If you can't join us live, you can always listen to the recording of our service. You'll find that on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.